It's time for our regular segment with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Uh, some interesting items to discuss this week. For example, I think many members of our audience, and I count myself among them, would not know that there's an offense called mischief and an offense called public mischief. And these two things are actually quite different from one another. That's exactly right. There's lots of mischief going on. <laughs> there seems to be lots of application for both of them right at the moment. Uh, and you're quite right. Uh, there are two completely distinct sections of the criminal code uh, that have very similar sounding names. Um, you've got section 430, which is the section that creates the offense of mischief. And then you have section 140 that creates the offense of public mischief. So what on earth is the difference? Um, so mischief is a section that would deal with a variety of things, such as destroying or damaging property rendering property dangerous, useless, or inoperative, or this one, which is of some uh, relevance uh, recently, obstructing, interrupting, or interfering with the lawful use, enjoyment, or operation of property. Uh, that one, for example, there was uh, reports recently of uh, protesters uh, who had uh, blocked the entrance to uh, a, a bank branch in order to protest, I think, oil sands investments or something of that something sort. Something akin to that, yes. Yeah, not letting people in or out. And that would be an example of uh, obstructing or interrupting with the lawful use and enjoyment of uh, property, right? You can't uh, go and block the door to somebody's house or uh, business. That, of course, uh, constitutes an offense, and the offense would be mischief. Um, that same offense would also apply for things like somebody who's engaged in spraying graffiti or something. That's what makes that a, a criminal offense, because you're damaging uh, somebody's property. So that's the basic mischief, Section 430. The other type of mischief uh, that we have is Section 140, which is public mischief. Uh, and that's a section which the uh, the mayor of Surrey is going to be well familiar with. Um, and that is because uh, he made a uh, report uh, that uh, a protester had driven uh, their car over his foot at a shopping mall. Such a bizarre uh, situation. So bizarre. <laughs> Apparently, there's a there's a controversy there about whether the RCMP should be replaced with a municipal police force, and so he made a uh, report that uh, protesters who were unhappy with that decision, uh, he claimed that one of them drove their car over his foot, um, and uh, there was a report made that that was not true, uh, and the Crown has now approved a charge of uh, public mischief uh, against the mayor. And public mischief doesn't involve damaging property. Uh, it involves things including making a uh, false statement that somebody has committed an offense, uh, doing something uh, which would, uh, you know, call it making statements to the police that are false that somebody else did something that you did. Um, so it would be things like if you phone the police and claim that some crime has occurred when it has not occurred, that is public mischief. Mm. Um, there are also other subsections of it that make it an offense to do things like claiming that you or somebody else, I guess you're not claiming you're dead, but he actually uses the language of uh, making it known uh, that uh, you or somebody else has died when that has not happened. Mm. And so the, the idea with public mischief would be to avoid things, including the police running around uh, investigating non-existent crimes, right? You know, yes. if you're trying to, you know, get back at your neighbor by falsely accusing them of doing something, uh, that is in fact an offense. 
Um, the Surrey case is going to be an interesting one. It's got a, a second layer to it, whereby the mayor there uh, is uh, claiming uh, that uh, the uh, allegation arose out of his official duties, uh, and so is charging to the uh, municipality of Surrey uh, his legal expenses. Uh, and so uh, he's getting quite a bit of pushback on that. But that's what's going on, the, the distinction between mischief and public mischief, uh, and both of those seem to be getting a fair bit of play. Um, one other comment I should have on public mischief, so people are aware, you might say to yourself, well, look, you know, in, in every case where somebody makes a complaint and it turns out that, uh, you know, the person's acquitted, right, mm-hmm. uh, does that necessarily mean that public mischief has occurred, right? Somebody's made some report of something and that hasn't been proven. Yes. The answer to that is no, um, at least in a practical way, because we need to bear in mind that all criminal offenses, including public mischief, need to be proven to a standard of beyond all reasonable doubt. And so it's not in every case where some allegation is made, somebody claims that they were assaulted, for example, and the judge has a doubt about it and acquits somebody of that. It doesn't necessarily follow that the Crown is then going to charge the complainant with public mischief on the basis that they made a false report, because then the Crown would have the burden of establishing that indeed the report was intentionally false beyond all reasonable doubt. Uh, and so there can often be a, a, a wide uh, gray, sw- gray area between proving beyond a reasonable doubt that a, a crime occurred, like driving over the foot, yes. uh, right, and proving that the uh, claim of getting your foot driven over was intentionally false. And so uh, not every case where there's an acquittal does it uh, then, is there a mere charge of public mischief? Um, but people should be aware of it. It also has this effect. Um, when you have somebody who makes a complaint to the police, somebody calls and says, somebody assaulted me, for example. Yes. One of the effects of the fact that there is this offense of public mischief is that it can give pause to somebody uh, who makes a false complaint about wanting to retract it. Uh, because the legal advice they're going to get is, well, if you acknowledge that you made a false report that you were, for example, assaulted, you at least in theory have now made an admission that you've committed public mischief. Mm. So one of these sort of unintended consequences is that it can uh, provide an impetus for somebody who has made a false police report to stick with it, as it were, and not want to acknowledge, yeah, yeah, I I lied when I claimed my neighbor came over and punched me. That didn't really happen uh, because you've now just admitted public mischief. And so it's one of the reasons why once a complaint's made, it can wind up getting ahead of steam where nobody wants to back off from it and, and the matter can wind up in court. So there it is. Mischief, don't block the door, spray paint, and public mischief, don't make false uh, police reports or you may uh, find yourself a foul of that uh, without the opportunity to bill your defense to the uh, municipality. <laughs> now, speaking of counseling an offense, which is also something that we hear discussed from time to time, but I, like many other ordinary members of the public, don't know where that threshold is. How does that work? Yeah, so that, that's a, a very good question. It, it is, a, in fact, an offense, uh, or I should say this, you become a party to an offense uh, where you counsel somebody to commit the offense. So, for example, if you tell somebody Hey, you know, uh, I, I hear the, uh, you know, bank security goes on lunch. Why don't you go and rob the bank when he's off getting a burger? Right? That's a, that's a good idea. Yes. Uh, and then the person goes off and does that, uh, robs the bank. You, the person who said, why don't you go rob the bank while the guy's getting lunch, uh, are also a party to the offense, meaning that you could be convicted of 
in fact, robbing the bank, mm. right? There are other ways in which you can become a party to an offense, but suggesting to somebody that they go and commit an offense makes you a party to it. Um, and so that's also of some uh, sort of contemporary interest when you've got, for example, we've just talked about offenses like mischief, right? If you encourage other people to go or suggest to them that they should go and engage in conduct like that, which is criminal, you are guilty of the offense as well uh, for recommending to somebody else do that. Uh-huh. There is, in fact, a separate offense of counseling an offense that doesn't, in fact, occur. Uh, but that's a section, separate section of the criminal code. So if you tell somebody, hey, why don't you go rob the bank? I hear they've got lots of money and the guards on lunch. Even if the person doesn't do it, you've committed an offense simply by the uh, recommendation that they proceed. Interesting. Now, there was a recent Court of Appeal decision dealing with this concept of counseling. Mm-hmm. And the, the case relates to the fact that when somebody's charged with a criminal offense, there'll be a document called an information which sets out what exactly the person is alleged to have done. Um, and in the case that the Court of Appeal dealt with, it involved a, a high-tension dispute uh, in a family uh, context uh, where the uh, husband uh, had um, been doing things to intimidate his wife and had asked somebody uh, to participate uh, in those uh, efforts. But he was charged with both criminal harassment, of which he was convicted, but he was also charged with counseling the offense of uttering threats to the uh, to his uh, wife. Uh, and the evidence at the trial was that the person he had uh, asked to intimidate his wife uh, had certainly acted on that. He had uh, done things like uh, drive a car right up to her and stop suddenly. He had done things. Uh, to her. Uh, But the evidence came out that while he had done things which would amount to an assault, the other person, the charge that he was, uh, the thing that he was actually charged with was counseling the offense of uttering a threat to his wife. Uh, And that wasn't proven, right? It wasn't clear on the evidence that what he had asked the other person to do was to threaten his wife. He had asked the other person to intimidate her. Hmm. And so the Court of Appeal found that because that doesn't necessarily involve a threat, the intimidation could be things like what he did, driving the car up to her, that offense of counseling, uh, the offense of uttering a threat, which is how he was charged, wasn't made out. And the idea is that if you specify on an information that somebody is being charged with doing a particular thing, that's what needs to be proven, not that you did something else that might also be an offense. And so uh, on appeal, the man was acquitted of the counseling of, an, of the offense of threatening, but his conviction for uh, criminal harassment remained. So it was an interesting case in that it sort of made clear what those elements of counseling are and the fact that you need to prove exactly what it is you've alleged or it's uh, not there, even if what you've uh, done uh, might amount to uh, some different offense. Um, it brings us back to why uh, it's necessary for the Crown to prove what it is they've charged a person with doing. Uh, so that's uh, counseling an offense. Don't uh, encourage somebody to go and do something or 
uh, you too uh, become a, a party to what uh, actually occurs. Interesting. So just making the attempt or just doing it itself a separate offense, I think many people would be forgiven for not knowing that, Michaels. And, of course, ignorance of the criminal code is not an excuse when one commits an offense. So it's good that we all know that. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen things recently, like we've had that uh, circumstance of the uh, Pepe Highway being uh, yes. blocked, or we've seen, for example, this uh, uh, the uh, bank being entrance being blocked, a much smaller uh, inconvenience for people. Yes. Uh, but um, much of that activity uh, may be organized online, for example, and yes. the internet doesn't get some special carve out. And so if somebody was, and we talked about this previously, the fact that it is a criminal offense to obstruct a highway. Yes. And that doesn't mean just the Pepe Highway. It means any road or bridge or similar road. Uh, And so if somebody was encouraging other people to do that, like if you're posting things online or sending messages saying, hey, let's get out and block the highway to draw attention to whatever our cause might be, that act of encouragement is itself... uh, uh, makes it an offense, right? It would be both an offense if you encourage somebody to do that and they don't do it, right? That would yes. be the counseling offense that doesn't occur. Or if you're encouraging others, like, hey, come on out and help me block the highway, right? That's a great idea. Um, and they go and do it. Then what it means is that you, as the person encouraging the highway to get blocked, are a party to the actual blocking of the highway. Uh, and so both those offenses, the ones that deal with the blocking of the highway and the mischief offense that we've talked about, both of those would be subject to that concept of counseling. And so not only should you not engage in those things yourself, but if you were encouraging other people to do it, that itself is an offense, even if the person doesn't uh, do uh, what you've asked them uh, to do. And so bringing those principles together, in the case we just talked about where yeah. the uh, husband, if he was charged with Counseling an offense that didn't occur, he'd be he would have been convicted of it. Or indeed, if he was charged with counseling the offense of committing an assault, he may be convicted. He may have been convicted of that as well. Uh, but it's simply because of how he was charged and the fact that there was no amendment made to the way he was charged that he was ultimately convicted. And so the the takeaway message is: uh, be careful about what you're encouraging other people to do you may find yourself convicted of an offense simply by the act of encouragement, uh, and there is no special carve-out for the Internet. So uh, don't assume that things like that can be done there with impunity. Interesting. Let's take our break. Fascinating material on today's Legally Speaking. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, continuing our conversation right after this. Legally speaking, continuing here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, before we move on to the next topic, I'm curious as to whether or not a person can be charged with both the attempt to counsel an offense as well as counseling an offense, or is it one or the other? You could charge both is the answer to that. Huh. Uh, and there's just really wide discretion on the part of the uh, Crown in terms of how they Um, specify charges on that document I mentioned called the information. And so an information, which is the charging document, would often include multiple offenses, um, and there would be no difficulty if it was ambiguous about whether an offense was uh, completed or not to charge something in both ways. The other thing to be aware of, uh, which the Court of Appeal commented on in the case we just talked about, is that when evidence comes out during the course of a trial that is sort of different and unexpected, like, for example, 
if the witness that the Crown thought was going to say, uh, you know, he asked me to go over and threatened to kill her, in fact, gets up on the stand and says, well, he asked me to go over and uh, punch her, <laughs> right? Well, that wasn't what I expected. I thought it was going to be a threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Crown can apply to what's called amend the information to change what the person is charged with, even after the trial is commenced. And when that kind of an application is made, the judge would need to determine whether it would be appropriate to amend the charge and whether that would somehow prejudice the um, accused person, right? And so, for example, if that kind of uh, unexpected evidence came out early in the trial, you might conclude that there's no prejudice to the accused person. But on the other hand, let's say the accused person had chosen to testify based on what they were actually charged with. And their evidence was, I didn't uh, uh, ask anyone to go and threaten her. I said, go over and punch her, (laughs) right? Uh, I didn't do that. I did this thing. Um, Then (laughs) you might well find that, in fact, at that point, the accused person has been prejudiced because, you know, they they conducted their defense and chosen to testify based on exactly what it was they were alleged to have done. Uh, And so... The Court of Appeal commented on the fact that there wasn't any application made by the Crown to amend the information to change it from counseling the offense of uttering a threat to counseling the offense of committing an assault. Uh, and so that was one of the re- that was one of their passing comments when they concluded that he was improperly convicted of the offense for which there just wasn't any evidence. Um, but in direct answer to your question, you could charge both. Uh, and uh, see how it played out. There may, of course, be strategic considerations for the Crown, right? You you could imagine, for example, if the uh, accused person elected to have a a jury trial and they were told that the person's charged with both doing something, you know, counseling something that happened and counseling it that it didn't happen, you might have jurors scratching their head about, you know, what is your theory of this thing? What 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 do you think happened here? You don't seem to know. But... As a matter of law, no problem. You could charge both and uh, see if uh, either of them stick. Or if there's a change in the evidence, you could apply to change the charge even after the trial started. Um, What is the parity principle? Because I see that's our next topic. We've got three and a half minutes. Sure. So we've talked before about the um, sentencing and the fact that uh, judges, trial judges, have a wide discretion to determine what an appropriate sentence would be taking into account, you know, all the personal factors of the accused person and what exactly they did. Uh, And on an appeal, the Court of Appeal isn't going to lightly interfere with what a trial judge has determined an appropriate sentence would be. You don't get to uh, appeal something and say, let's just try again and see what you all think up in this different court. Uh, But the uh, case that's caused me to think of this references this principle called the purity principle, And that principle is actually a principle that's also referenced in the uh, section of the criminal code which deals with principles of sentencing. And this is the idea. It says this. A sentence should be similar to sentences imposed on similar offenders for similar offenses committed in similar circumstances. Right? That's sort of probably an idea of fairness you would probably arrive at even if it wasn't written down, right? If two people do the same thing, you should probably treat them in a similar way. This would mean that they're similar people who did the same thing. They shouldn't have wildly different outcomes. But the court is supposed to be the same court. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. People say, well, what's going on here, right? Um, And so this case involved two people that committed a serious violent, what amounted to home invasion with a fake gun and knife and so on, a very serious offense. Yes. And the sentencing judge sentenced one of them to five years in prison and the other person to three years in prison. 
And the judge did that because the judge was misled, saying that the person who the longer sentence was given to the uh, told, well, the distinguishing factor is that that person was on bail for something else. And so that was very aggravating. And so they should get a longer sentence. And so the judge did that. Uh, But it became clear that both individuals, one, the guy who got five years, was on bail. But the person who got three years was serving some other sentence in the community. (laughs) And so both of them were very aggravated. And the Court of Appeal was faced with the person who got five years appealing and saying, hey, why should I get five years when the other person who did pretty well the same thing got three years? That's a pretty Mm. big distinction. And while I appreciate I was on bail, that guy was serving a sentence. So why do I get two years more? Hmm. Um, And based on that concept of the parity principle, even though both sentences were sort of at the lower end of the range and the five years wouldn't have been on its own inappropriate for that kind of serious behavior, uh, the Court of Appeal found that there just wasn't a principle basis to treat these people in such a different way. And so in reference, using reference to that parity principle, even bearing in mind the wide discretion the trial judges have, because of that misunderstanding about, you know, what was more aggravating about the person who got the much longer sentence, the Court of Appeal agreed to reduce that sentence to four years, <laughs> so still longer than the other individual, uh, but uh, because there were some distinguishing characteristics about what exactly their roles were in the offense. Uh, but that principle was applied uh, in order to uh, bring the two sentences closer together bearing in mind that sort of basic principle of fairness, which would be, hey, two people did the same thing. They're similar people. They shouldn't get completely disparate uh, results. And so the parity principle is one that's applied, and it's one people should know about. And I think probably one you know, most people would come to on their own, even if we didn't see fit to write it down and put it in the criminal code and name it. I think most people would just say, as a matter of fairness, that's how we should generally treat people. Indeed. Legally speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. All the time we have for this week, but thanks so much, Michael. Until next time. Thanks so much. Stay safe. All right. You too. Bye now.